0: Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 29 of Greens with Envy. I'm Golf Course Industry Managing Editor Matt Lowell alongside my friend and colleague Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano. Guy, how you doing? Doing great, Matt. I feel like we just recorded one of these. We probably did. This is the podcast where Guy and I hop in a room together with a couple of mics in front of us and we talk about where we've been what we've seen, who we've talked with, and so much more. And this month is a lot of courses that Guy visited visited in the last month, all up and down the East Coast. The episode is titled Navigating New Jersey and Philadelphia. It felt like you were gone for five or six days, and you probably packed seven or eight courses into that. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Glenbrook Golf Club? Let's just go chronologically, Matt, on okay. this trip. So...
1: As we mentioned before, we're based in Northeast Ohio, so I was headed to northern New Jersey to begin this trip on a Sunday. It was actually U.S. Open Sunday, so that entails driving across Interstate 80, and I stayed in a lovely town in the Poconos of Pennsylvania called Stroudsburg and got to my hotel around 3 p.m. It was a primetime U.S. Open. I'm like, oh, I want to go check out a golf course or play a few holes before I settle in and watch the end of the U.S. Open. I uh, found a municipal course operated by Strahd Township, Pennsylvania, called Glenbrook Golf Club. And it was fabulous. Uh, Robert White designed lots of Golden Age features out there. I was able to get uh, the front nine in before I settled it in and watched John Rahm win the U.S. Open. And what a cool place. They only charged me $10 to play nine holes walking. Now, it was like, I think the heat index was 97 degrees. It was really stuffy. I was really the only one out there walking, but I, I wanted to, you know, after being in the car for five and a half hours, I wanted to walk around. Absolutely loved the the front nine of the course that I saw. It was the first time I had ever been on a Robert White design. And for those that aren't familiar, Robert White was a, he was a bit of everything. He was a golf professional. He was also a, an agronomist and he was an architect. Glenbrook opened in 19... 19- 24. So it's approaching its centennial.
0: This is an audio piece of content, obviously not video. But if you were here in the room with us, you would see the guy is now shuffling through a pile, a pile of scorecards. I think he has one from probably everywhere. Visited second time this episode in three minutes.
1: A, I collect these. We actually just organized the scorecard container Mm -hmm. in the golf course industry headquarters. But B, it also helps me remember what mm-hmm. I saw when I just look at the card. And sometimes there's some whole numbers and details and things that I need on there. But yeah, it was my first time on a Robert White design, the president of the PGA in 1916. And then he was a founding member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. So you talk mm. about an accomplished uh, career. And uh, what I really liked about the course, you could tell that it it appealed to a lot of players in far Eastern Pennsylvania, but it, it had that golden age feel with some humps and some steep slopes around bunkers and and how the terrain was used i mean the ninth hole is a par five and i kid you not matt the fairway probably had about 45 degrees of slope and went down to the road it was one of the most bizarre par fives i've ever played because you could hit it into the left rough and that was about the only way you could get a flat lie but so much fun to play holes like that the course is maintained by a jeff feiken team they do a, a, a great job keeping those features looking, looking tidy. And there were some like split fairway type stuff. Like I said, some humps and some hillock bunkers that were really uh, fun to to look at. And, you know, fortunately I didn't have to play out of any, but that was a great way to start the trip and get a bonus nine in. And I suspect that this is a really uh, popular golf course has some native areas. I noticed on the first hole, they had an operation pollinator plot. So that was cool to see uh, municipal land. Being used like that, it had an old stone clubhouse that I think was like a registered historical building. Uh, you hmm. know, I just went in to, to, to pay. That's where the pro shop was. I didn't really check any of that out. But uh, some ponds out there, uh, took some really cool pictures and just a place that I never knew existed that's ultra cool like that and appeals to a lot of golfers. And there are thousands of courses like Glenbrook out there in the United States. And I urge you, whether you're on a road trip or at home, go try to find those places.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned a few seconds ago who maintained that course, who who the superintendent of Glenbrook is. Is that because you remembered it, because it's in your, in your encyclopedic brain, or is it on the scorecard? A little bit of all the above, but it is <laughs> okay. on the scorecard. Okay. And I ask because you did have a Facebook and a Twitter post in June when you organized all the scorecards in the office, and you actually broke down percentage-wise how many cards – in the collection mention the superintendent how many mention the pro and was it gm was that the third architect the arch oh, that makes a lot more sense do you have those numbers cuz it was surprisingly low the the cards that do mention even one of those three let alone all three well
1: i don't have my phone in front of me
0: okay. and our computer is recording with this but
1: that flipping you here matt
0: is me flipping through my notebook
1: cuz i believe that this is in here somewhere
0: Guy keeps prodigious notes.
1: No, I just have a horrible memory, so I have to write everything
0: down. Which is why he has prodigious notes. This makes for incredible radio. I found it, Matt. Okay. We did a
1: analysis of 113 scorecards accumulated through travels or playing golf or places we've been. Uh, we've been to way more places than that, but we have 113 scorecards we found here in the office. How many do you think... Mentioned the superintendent out of those 113.
0: Was it something like 50? No. Was it lower? It was 33. So about-
1: 33 out of 100. 36 out of the 113 mentioned the golf professional. Okay. 50 of the 113 mentioned the architect. Glenn Brooke, the course we're talking about now, it mentions the superintendent, as we mentioned, and the golf professional, but not Robert White as Hmm. the architect.
0: Interesting. And then 17 of the 113 have all three listed. It just seems like that would be more, not necessarily standard information, because obviously the pro and the superintendent could come and go. But it seems like the architect, you can leave that information on a card for years, if not decades. Most clubs are not going to have... Well, it depends how many architects touch the course, right? Like I'm not going to mention
1: the name of the club, but I'm writing about one now where eight architects have touched it.
0: Yeah, I mean, situations like that, maybe you don't want to say that, but, you know, if you have a Robert White, why wouldn't you put that on the card? I don't know. Maybe you think that just the general public or your clientele doesn't care that
1: somebody that was around 100 years ago designed the course. I don't know. I guess it's about knowing your your customers and clientele. Maybe it's about yeah. space, or design of the scorecard. But well,
0: but now, now you have two journalists trying to opine on golf facility management and golf course management, but it just seems like, I don't know, you you – Say that maybe your clientele doesn't know or doesn't appreciate, isn't that at a certain point the job of the club to educate and let people know what they're playing on, let patrons know who designed the the course where they're playing? You would think if I were
1: running a golf facility, believe me, we've played yeah. fantasy golf course yeah. owner or club president a lot here at Golf Course Industry, I would have the year the course opened on there. Mm-hmm. The name of the golf course superintendent, mm-hmm. the name of the golf professional, mm-hmm. and the name of the original architect. That all makes sense. And this is another one. Out of those 113 scorecards we're talking about, six have on there mention of the fact that they're involved in the Audubon Cooperative Sanctuary Program. So if I were owning a golf course that was participating in that program, which if mm-hmm. I were owning a golf course, knowing where so- society is headed, I would find a way to make that certification work because it's going to be good business sense. So six of them have that mentioned on there.
0: Well, and you say that as somebody who our April issue included three stories that covered, what, 15 or 16 pages about Audubon and the 30th anniversary of Audubon and a lot of the great work they've done. So obviously, you know, you know where our opinion lies on that. But yeah, that seems like the kind of thing that if a club is involved in, you would want to not necessarily brag about it, but at least let people know that you're You're a part of that. You're participating. You're doing this, and it's it's a good thing. So that was your first stop, Glenbrook Golf Club, as you wrote a magnificent throwback, a nice muni on the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. You started the formal part of your trip, the planned portion, the planned visits with a couple of huge, huge names in northern New Jersey. Do you want to name those clubs, or do you want me to name them? Let's get right into it. So
1: my first formal work visit on that trip was montclair golf club in montclair new jersey 36 holes the club has been around since 1893 kind of interesting it's not played as two 18 hole courses
0: it's played as four separate nine hole courses right they have four nine hole loops and they've been renovating and restoring a nine pretty much every year now for what the last they just finished and it just reopened Third
1: nine? The third, yeah. So there's the first nine, second nine, third nine, and fourth nine. The first, second, and third nines are designed by Donald Ross. Mm-hmm. The fourth nine is designed by Charles Steam Shovel Banks, who worked with Seth Rayner. I only had time to tour the third nine and fourth nine with director of golf course operations, Michael Campbell, who is a fascinating story within himself. He's a third generation superintendent not too many of those no there's some out there yeah but but not many yeah yeah. and one of the few that i've i've met and we had a wonderful tour uh seeing the work that was done on the third nine a lot of trees removed fairways became wider greens expanded montclair has an interesting history in the sense that that's where robert trent jones senior made his home and reese jones's office is there too so the jones family had been involved with the course for a long time uh, the current work is being done by brian schneider who's worked with tom doak's renaissance golf firm and it, it, it it's a restorative effort here on all four of these nines and the club's also doing it to the tennis facility the pool the clubhouse i knew i was in the right spot when i was driving down the road and saw a <laughs> staging area for construction vehicles i i knew that i was yeah. near the right club but on third nine you know just unbelievable views of the property now that have opened up because of the tree removal and the restorative effort. It's 0.7 miles from the clubhouse, which sits at the top of the property. So all four nines start and end at the clubhouse, which is That's remarkable cool. if you think about it. And it's 0.7 miles from the clubhouse to the far point of the property. And now you, you can see expansive views when you're when you're up there uh, beginning the third nine. And the first hole in the third nine plays downhill. And the ninth hole on the third nine plays up. Some cool Donald Ross features have been restored, whether it's cross bunkers or, or humps and swales on, on the greens. And it just looked like a, uh, really fun golf course to play. Like a lot of places they've been slammed with play, especially since recently unveiling this nine, there were open approaches and Michael Campbell, the four hours I spent with him, it, it felt like getting a, um, degree in turf grass management i mean he really knows his stuff he's also been a gm there and at rock spring which is a charles banks design right near montclair golf club i wish i had more time i would have loved to have seen rock spring that's supposed to be one of the cooler designs in the whole new york metropolitan area but michael uh, just gave a lot of perspective on how he maintains and manages turf project they're doing uh, being a third generation superintendent uh you know he described the role of a golf course superintendent as a problem solver and that probably epitomizes it in many ways uh called golf course superintendents farmers and the crop that they farm is turf and how many crops do people step on i can't think of many besides turf where people uh intentionally walk on them i mean obviously every now and then someone might walk through a soybean or cornfield pumpkin patch yeah pumpkin patch yeah yeah i guess i've been through an apple orchard picking
0: apples but you're not like
1: you're not stomping on on the
0: apple trees no
1: Really fun visit. Got to see the fourth nine, too, the the Charles Banks one, and hopefully I get a chance to go back in a few years when all this work is done. Uh, We could have spent days there. Uh, So much to see, but, yeah, one of those clubs that's been around for a long time and is certainly a heavy hitter in
0: that New York City metropolitan area. They have sent us a few news releases. I think the first was in November and the second was earlier this summer about the updates on the restoration I guess I thought they'd started earlier. Is the the third nine, was that the first nine to be completed on the restoration? Yep. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it will be through 2024 that this restoration is going to run.
1: Yeah, they're they're trying to do one a year from what I understand. Excellent.
0: Well, look forward to hearing more about Montclair in the years to come. And I don't need to tell them this, but if anybody from Montclair is listening, uh, keep those news releases coming. The photos that you have shared and that are on golf dot com are absolutely stunning and have been very popular on Twitter and Facebook. The second Northern New Jersey name, another just big, big, big player. You spent some time at Baltus roll.
1: Yeah. Before we get to Baltus So there was an in-between stop between okay. Baltus and Montclair. So that Monday afternoon I met our contributor, Rick Wolfel. He lives in hmm. Philadelphia. I was in Northern New Jersey. We met halfway to, play around a round of golf together at a fabulous municipal course And I think at that point I was in central New, New Jersey. I'm not exactly sure where I was. I wasn't far from the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. So, a golf course called Highbridge Hills Public Course, Mark Munjim designed, opened in 1999. Superintendent is is Jeff Richardson. Really open link style course, you know, real expansive fescue native areas, a lot of elevation. But what a fun golf course to play. Uh, had some short par threes. One was a 90-yard par three. It reminded me of Aaron Hill, a hole that I had played at Aaron Hills or something. But the most terrifying 90-yard shot I've had in a long time over a bunker, fescue native area, wetlands behind the green. You know, The green was maybe 10 paces wide. It was just a terrifying shot. Went long, went into the, the wetland area. Didn't find the golf ball. It's going to happen when you play a hole that you haven't played. But uh, the v- views of uh, Spruce Run Reservoir and a really cool maintenance facility. It was a barn. It was a red barn, and it fit the property so well. It was sort of rural New Jersey with those rolling hills. Cool place. Great to spend some time with Rick Wolfell, who does the wonderful Woman of Golf podcast, uh, contributes a lot of articles to us. Uh, he lives in the Philadelphia area. He's one of the rocks on our team. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we both really enjoyed a golf course and another golf course I didn't really knew existed until you know, trying to find a place to meet Rick and we wanted to meet at a public golf course it just worked out uh, perfectly and I want to make a comment here so everyone thinks that New Jersey's just a bunch of private golf courses and that's really far from the case so there are 271 golf facilities in the state of New Jersey and 126 of them are private so that's a little less than half but New Jersey's got 60 municipal courses and they have some great county golf systems. High Bridge Hills was in Hunterton County, but you know Union County, New Jersey is uh, home to Galloping Hill, which I wrote a few years ago in a story we called uh, The Golf Course That Never Sleeps. I mean, they're pumping mm-hmm. out 60, 70, 80,000 rounds a year. I mean, they're Insane. they're in the New York City metropolitan area and you know, put a high quality public golf course there and, and, and those do some numbers. renovations like they did. And you're going to get a lot of people play the golf course. Yeah.
0: Those were numbers before the pandemic, too. I wonder what they did last year, if they were doing 60, 70, or 80 before. That's wild.
1: Yeah, I don't even want to know what Russell Harrison team there are dealing with
0: and how quick they have to work to get out do ahead you, of play or a round play. Do you think, and we haven't heard this story, and if we have, I mean, it would be a great story for online or even in the magazine. Do you think that there's a course that hit 100,000 rounds last year? It's a great question. Maybe, yeah. maybe somewhere – out west. I know there's some municipal courses yeah. in and around. And I would say Los not, Angeles. Not, yeah, I think not, not I think Rancho facility.
1: Park's one of them that gets a ton of play. Yeah,
0: not a facility like an 18 hole court. Obviously there were facilities that handled more than 100,000 rounds last if year. If
1: you did 100,000 rounds last year and you're listening to this podcast,
0: let us know. Yeah. And we will write a story about you. It'd be a heck of a story. Six figure rounds. Um and in case folks were wondering, just a quick uh, back of the envelope math, 60 municipal courses in New Jersey out of 271 works out to about 22% and change. So about two out of every nine courses in New Jersey is municipal, which is pretty good. There's some
1: awesome land in New Jersey, too. If you had not been to northern New Jersey or even southern New Jersey, you probably have this perception that New Jersey's just this densely populated
0: state with a lot of roads and housing development. Well, the running joke is is, oh, you're from New Jersey. What's your exit? That's how you identify people from New Jersey is is where they get off of the highway, where they get off the turnpike. So. but yeah, it's it's far from the case. Yeah. There, there's yeah. some great areas to the
1: state, unbelievable golf land and terrain, because you got some topography, but it's not like severe mountain terrain. It's a it's a, it's, it's it's hills, rolling hills, a lot of greenery. It's a, it's a really once you get outside the urban areas, it's really a fun state to to drive around. And this area that Highbridge Hills was in, which is very peaceful and serene, and you know, there you are, you're you're close to New York City, about an hour away. Philadelphia is right down the road. The, Le- the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, which is pretty heavily populated, mm-hmm. is right across the river. You didn't really feel like you were near any of that. So I suspect that that course does a lot of rounds too. I mean, it, we were there on a Monday afternoon, and there was pretty much a foursome on every golf hole, and it was a hot ninety-degree day. But no, just a lot of fun playing that that golf course, and you know, hopefully that's a place that. You just like Glenbrook. Hopefully it's a place you somehow get back to at another point, because it's always, this wasn't, I guess it was a work visit because I was spending time with Rick, who, like I said, is a key part of our team, but we didn't have a chance to to meet the superintendent. We just went there as customers paying whatever the, the green fee was. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was well worth it. And, Uh, one of those places where you'd love to get back to and play again because a lot of those holes the first time you play them you really don't know what you're doing but the second time you you have an idea of what angles and what pathways to take and that brings up a good point too right like a lot of golf course raiders go into courses play it once leave and that's the end of it i think you need to be at a golf course you know three to six times to truly understand what it's doing and to to evaluate it i mean we talk about all golf courses on this podcast glowingly i don't know how Someone could go play a golf course once and be able to rate it and really know what's going on from a player's perspective.
0: Right. I mean, you you get on and you get a feel and you get an idea for the topography and the beauty and the maintenance and everything, the agronomy. But playing a golf course once, to me, is kind of similar to reviewing a restaurant when you go opening night or opening week. Of course, everything's going to be top-notch. You're not going to notice the little details, you're not going to notice the warts. When you review a restaurant, you really want to go back three or six or nine or 12 months after it's opened, and that is kind of similar to going back to a golf course three or six times and, and getting a feel for everything, I think. Yeah, I wish I could play every golf course I've ever been to six times. That'd be a lot of golf. You can never play enough golf. So anything else from uh, Highbridge Hills and your, your round with Rick? Okay.
1: No, just a lovely afternoon and like glenbrook you just sometimes fall into these courses you don't know exist and
0: they grow on you instantly Yep. and before we do move on back to uh the reporting phase of your trip one more quick plug for rick wolfell and his incredible and fun podcast wonderful women of golf three episodes in uh the fourth episode will be up shortly on the superintendent radio network he also does host the women's golf report which i believe is still biweekly. Uh, so Rick has two podcasts. They're both great. Give him a listen. One is on the Superintendent Radio Network, and one you have to search for. It's, it's uh, elsewhere on the podcast platforms. I listen to it on Spotify. Yeah, give Rick a listen. He really knows what he's talking and writing about. Uh, so back to the planned trip. Now we get into to Baltus Roll. I didn't know that you played hybrid Bridge Hills before visiting Baltus Roll. I'm just going to let you riff on Baltus Roll. Because I, I heard a little bit about your trip, but obviously I was not there.
1: Yeah, I had a chance to play the lower course at Baltusrol as part of a media unveiling event. Gil Hans was the architect that did the restoration of the A.W. Tillinghast design. And what a awesome day that was. Started it by spending time with uh, Director of Golf Courses and Grounds, Greg Boring, and his team. And we had a wonderful conversation. They started the project in early march of 2020 and found a way to get it done when they were supposed to get it done first time i had met greg he used to be at the country club of scranton uh really impressed with the team that he has a lot of a lot of turf talent there uh met sean haverdink the uh, superintendent of the lower course and jeff roggio the superintendent of the upper course it turns out i knew jeff from my days of working maintenance at the penn state golf courses so oh my
0: gosh what was that like almost 15 years ago
1: it was 10 years ago. Wow. So those that aren't familiar, when I worked for the Center Daily Times as a sports writer in State College, Pennsylvania, for a few years there, I worked part-time maintenance at the Penn State golf courses. It was a few hours here and there around my full-time job. Loved it. Loved everything about working for Superintendent Rick Padgett and Assistant Superintendent Scott Martell and Assistant Superintendent Don Chester. Don's retired, but Scott now is the Blue Course Superintendent. And- Rick oversees the whole department but anyway they're they're friends of mine and we had a lot of student workers that supplemented the labor that us townies provided I guess that's what I was in state college because I didn't go to Penn State I I, I worked there so I was a townie and some of those student workers were turf grass management students who in the fall and spring before they did their internships would work a few hours a week at the Penn State golf courses well it Hmm. turns out Jeff worked alongside me when I worked at the Penn State golf courses. And I, I figured this was going to happen that some of the turf grass management students that were there when I was there would ascend to superintendent jobs in the industry. And somehow we would make the connection that we were working on the same crews at the Penn State golf courses at the same time. So Jeff brought this up. There were so many people I met at that time that I don't remember everyone's name so big props to Jeff for remembering me I guess he he's probably a reader or something and put two and two together that this was the uh this was the idiot that was the sports writer that tried to mow tees but was mowing snakes instead of lasers every morning at the Penn State golf courses I, I, I don't know but so it was cool to see him and see that you know he's the upper upper course superintendent on Greg's staff at Baldur's Raw uh got to spend some time with uh Greg and Mark from Total Turf the the contractor that did a the project they are doing terrific work. They've done work now on a few Gil Hans projects. And then we had a chance to hear Gil Hans make a presentation to the media that was there and the members. And you know what a well-spoken architect. You can tell why he gets a lot of these high-profile uh, assignments just when he's in a room. He has that it factor, Matt, and he can Talk to members in terms that they can understand, and he's not intimidated by, by the situation. And then you get to see the work they did out on the lower course, the restorative work. I had never been to the lower course before they did the restoration, so I don't really know what it was like before, besides what I saw on TV watching major championships. But I uh, very impressed with it. And it was kind of cool because it started raining as we were playing, and you're probably like, oh, wow, you get your one chance to play Baltas role. Why is it cool that it's raining? Well, as somebody that works for an industry publication, I got to see how the fun stuff works. I got to see how the golf course drains. I got to hear that rumbling by some tees of the uh, of the, the below-ground system and got to hear that. And it, it was raining, and it, it got hard at some points, and the golf course was still playing very firm, which made it fun to play. I'm sure that's the way A.W. Tillinghast intended it to play with the, the ball on the ground and the different shots that you had. The course has some elevation, but then, you know, holes 7 through 13 are really flat. But the part of the golf course that really got me was the uh, third hole is a par 4 that dog legs left, and you come down this hill, and you just have this view of this incredible clubhouse. And I, from what I understand, that that view wasn't entirely always there because of the trees. The short grass blends into the, uh, the fourth tee, which is the the par three over water, probably the best known hole at Baltusrol, Rawl. And that's just one of the coolest spots I've ever, ever been in golf, seeing that clubhouse there and being on that third green and then standing on that fourth tee and thinking of everything that's happened. And that was the spot of the course where it, it really got me. But Gil Hans was inspired by Tillinghast. He said, this isn't a Gil Hans golf course. It's an AW Tillinghast golf course. And they just did a, a fabulous job with that project. And the way it was described to me is that it's a new old course. And I was kind of wondering what, what does that mean? And the course reopened really about a month before we were there. And it felt like it had been in place like that for five or 10 years, especially the fescue around the bunkers and the turf conditions and the whole aesthetic and ambiance of the course felt like it had been in place for a while. And that's a credit to uh, Greg Boring and his team, the Total Turf team, Gil and all the other people that worked on this project. And there were probably hundreds of people that stepped on that golf course at some point during the restoration to, to get it to that point. And that's pretty cool when you can do something, unveil it, and feel
0: like it's been there from a long for a long time. That that really takes a special group of people to do that. Does that make it though a new old course or an old new course? I'm being semantic here. I think it's it's a new old course because they were it's a new
1: restoration. And you know, three years from now they get to do it all over again because they're gonna do the uh, the upper course. And the members that we played with who were incredibly hospitable the whole entire time, you know, after we got done on the lower course, we drove around the upper course and that's a fascinating layout and you, you almost feel like you're in the, the mountains of Virginia or West Virginia there on the side of the hill and I, I can't wait to see what they do with that.
0: That's my fears. That's high praise from you. That something feels like West Virginia. I felt like I was,
1: yeah. I, I just felt like I was in a different place than New Jersey. But Baldy's Roll is a, a club whose history is really has few peers. In fact, it's on the national uh, list of registered historical places. They mm-hmm. have a plaque for it. I think there are less than ten golf facilities that actually have that designation, and mm. uh, just everything there hits you if you're into to golf and history,
0: like I am. And if you're into high level turf management, then that place. Would fascinate you too. Let's take a quick time out. Guy has already talked about Glenbrook Golf Club and Montclair Golf Club in Highbridge Hills and Baltusrol. Let's talk real quick about the August issue of Golf Course Industry Magazine. The July issue, by the time this podcast drops, either should be in your physical mailbox or should be there shortly. The cover story, really great story by Guy about Amanda Fontaine and her father and sister. They all work at Ledges Golf Club in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Amanda joined me on the last episode of Beyond the Page. The August issue, which will be uh, coming out in about three or four weeks, has a lot of great stories, including the first cover story by our very talented intern, Jack Gleckler, about a passion project out in Oklahoma. Uh, looking forward to seeing that in print. Imagine if Sandhills and Royal Melbourne had a kid. That's enough of a teaser, I think. That's
1: what this course in Oklahoma that's going to be on our August cover resembles
0: also in that issue and I guarantee
1: you've probably have never heard of this golf course
0: oh no I hadn't I hadn't yeah well if you haven't uh also in that issue great features about let's see trees and a couple of courses and wonderful columns including a great great Q&A uh with Matthew Wharton with uh, an international superintendent an international greenkeeper as they are called across the pond. So a lot of great stuff in the August issue. Also, our weekly Fast and Firm email newsletter, if you do not get it already, it is delivered free every Tuesday to your inbox, packed with all the news and notes of the week, uh, original reporting and stories, podcast links, and uh, roundups from uh, news about courses and products and industry hirings, all sorts of stuff in there. So if you don't subscribe to that, you can do so at golfcourseindustry.com. There is a sign up right on the homepage of the website. All right, let's get back to uh, East Coast courses. New uh, navigating New Jersey and Philadelphia. I love this next one. What the grillix? That's uh, the symbols that you use to mark obscenities in comic books. What the bleep is happening near the Jersey Shore? That that's not vague at all, guy. What what is happening near the Jersey Shore? So my next stop, I I drove down the Garden State
1: Parkway to southern new jersey to visit a place i've seen a lot of pictures of and have heard some things about but did not quite truly understand a place called union league national Mm. if you've not heard of union league national you need to go on social media and follow fry straka global golf course design or scott bordner the director of agronomy at union league national and start looking at pictures of this golf course because i've been in well, not this role, but I've been with golf course industry now for close to seven and a half years. And this is the biggest golf course construction project I have seen and probably even read about in my seven and a half years here. So it's a 27-hole facility. It's only about five miles from the coast. The Philadelphia Union League purchased the Barrens golf course in 2017 and basically blew it up. So Barons was a Michael Hertz and Dana Fry design. Uh, They brought in Dana Fry and Jason Straka, who now work for uh, Fry Straka Global Golf Course Design, to basically do whatever they want with this property. But they've kept parts of it open the entire time. So this isn't just go in and bulldoze the whole property and build 27 new holes and reopen it. They're doing it piece by piece here. And I've really never seen anything like this. Uh, They have an 80 foot man-made hill on the golf course. And they like Mm -hmm. that one so much that they're now in the process of building a 50 foot man-made hill on the golf course. Got to spend time with everybody involved in the project. Jason Straka was on site with me. He's a a friend of golf course industry. Mm -hmm. I've done some great tours with him over the years. Tim Malone, who owns the uh, golf course builder guaranteed landscaping, got to spend time with him. He's an amazing story. You know, started his company, with just him and now they're doing the biggest project in the industry you know a few decades later got to spend time with scott bordner the director of agronomy who made the move from chicago golf club where he was a superintendent hmm. to work on this project uh spent some time with uh patrick hockey who's the growing superintendent so how about patrick he grew in the uh the east course at marion when they did the <laughs> gill hantz restoration go go figure there's gill's name again and then moved over to Union League National to do this grow-in, and he's the superintendent there. Spent time with assistant superintendents Ross Burgess and Ryan Moore. Uh, Spent time with general manager Jacob Hoffer, and spent time with irrigation technician Herb Phillips, who is, uh, he had me ROFL in my conversation with him. He was working as a carny on the Jersey Shore before taking a job as the irrigation technician at Union League National. Imagine being a summer carny on the Jersey Shore.
0: Yeah, I can. You have to be really good at selling whatever you, you have. You would be good at that, Matt, with your talk show um, No, 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 no. skills and your voice.
1: You would be really good at getting people no. to step right down. No,
0: because you have to have a certain ability to BS people. And because I focus so much on trivia, and all trivia is based to a degree on facts, I don't like to BS people. I, I like the truth and facts. And so Carney, take nothing away from it. It's, it's an incredible skill to have, but you have to be able to BS people all day. And I, I don't think I could do that.
1: The best way I can describe Union League National is here we go again, breeding golf courses. It's not far from Pine Valley. So it's right. it's got that sandy, you know, pine tree feel. But also Dana Fry worked with Michael Hertz in, at Calusa Pines in mm. Florida. So they're kind of billing it as uh, you know, you bred Calusa Pines with Pine Valley looks something like Union League National. I mean, the scale of this is so jarring, Matt. By the end of it, move 1.3 million cubic yards of dirt, soil, sand fill. I mean, it's a completely sandy site, mm-hmm. which is probably going to be great for golf course conditions, but it's sort of nightmarish for growing in turf because the water just percolates so fast. So you can't, you know, as you're, you're trying to grow in bent grass, you just can't get enough water on on this, if you're not getting rain, I mean, it, it really is. It's a very tough growing that Patrick, hockey, and the team are doing. And you're probably wondering, what is the Union League? Well, the, the Philadelphia Union League started in 1862 to support the Civil War effort. They've been a downtown. They've Union. been a downtown social club, or they were a downtown social club, almost exclusively for the first 152 years of its history.
0: So that takes us to within the last decade.
1: Yep. In 2014, they purchased a private golf course, Frankfurt, Torsdale in Northeast Philadelphia. It's a Donald Ross design. So that became Union League Toursdale. And then in 2017, they purchased the Sandbarons Golf Club close to the Jersey Shore, and that's become Union League National. And if you really think about it, it's in a great location because a lot of the people in Philadelphia that own beach homes... Are within a ten-minute summer radius of where Union League National is, so they they go to the shore on the weekends or spend a week there. And there's some really good public golf courses, high-level ones, but they're always so crowded and it's tough to get a tee time. There's some private clubs too, but they're more the you know the quaint, quiet type private club. So there's no really huge national-level type private club in this market, and you have all these people going there for these summer homes, it's almost like the the Hamptons for people that live in Philadelphia. Not quite to that extent. So Jeff McFadden, the, the general manager of the Union League, really saw an opening to build a big-time, large-scale, private golf course there. And it, it, so far, it's been a, a success. I mean, they have a full membership, and they keep on letting... Dana Fry and Jason Straka make it bigger and bigger and bigger. At some point, they're going to have to finish this mm-hmm. thing, and I think they're projected to finish next year. I, I would say they're probably two thirds of the way done, but projected they've kept to But they've kept holes open the entire time. So as they finish holes, they open them, so you keep giving members and prospective members and guests a taste of what's coming next. And it's it is total eye candy, Matt. Just looking through my phone when I was there, it's probably the most photogenic. Golf course I've ever been to. The really the revegetation that Jason Strake is leading, I don't even know how to put it into words. I mean, it's millions upon millions of plants, the, the mounding, and it's all all human made, right? The the high hill, just the the sparkling green turf, the the ponds and retention areas. I posted some pictures on social media, but that, I don't even know if that does it justice. But you just look behind your camera, and everywhere you turn, there's there's just something else you want to take a picture of. Uh, the nines are named after. Civil War generals. Can you guess the three generals that they named the nines after?
0: Sherman, Grant. Mm, who would be the third? I don't know. Mead. Mm, that's a tough one. That's Keeping the with the Union League theme. Gotcha. I mean, that's the, smart. The, I like their, that. brand,
1: their branding is un- incredible. Yeah. I got a taste of it, right? But I, I want to go back when the whole thing's done. And a lot of people have you know, seen Scott post pictures on social media or seen Fry Stryka post pictures on social media, and it's starting to generate a buzz. People are starting to figure out what this is, and it really is unlike anything going on in the the golf market right now.
0: Real quick aside, how busy are Fry Straker right now? Because they've got this, I know they're working on that project that's opening in Abu Dhabi soon, and I'm sure they've got other irons in the fire. I, I know everybody's busy, but just because I've probably read a few things about what they're working on, they just, they seem like they are really going at the moment they're busy and they do a good job of letting the industry know they're busy
1: but Mm -hmm. through solid marketing and public relations and inviting people like myself to to come out and see what they're doing and to meet the superintendents and other agronomists involved in the project
0: other takeaways from the union league you've already said that you want to get back there when it's finished so if anybody there is listening you know maybe get guy back there in late 22 early 23 what Really, what they're
1: doing on the employee side is just Okay, as,
0: you did mention this. This is really cool.
1: This is just as impressive with anything on the building on the golf course side. The Union League now owns three golf courses. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, they have Toursdale, which was purchased in 2014. Union League National, which is in the construction phase. And then earlier this year, they purchased the former Ace Club from Chubb Insurance in suburban Philadelphia. Now that's Union League Liberty Hill. So they have three golf courses— It's kind of amazing if you think about it, a 150-year-old social club in downtown Philadelphia that pretty much everybody in Philadelphia knows what the Union League is, starting a golf operation from scratch. And it started in 2014 with General Manager Jeff McFadden having this vision. His first golf employee I spent a lot of time with is uh, Sean Palmer, who's now the the general manager. He was an assistant pro at Marion, so he, he had to start selling people to come join this Union League staff. And it was just Torresdale, and then they get Union League National, it was a major win for them to get Scott Bordner to come from Chicago Golf Club. I mean, people are probably wondering, why would somebody leave the superintendent job at Chicago Golf Club to go to a golf course that nobody's ever heard of? Well, he he bought into the vision. Sean Palmer is quite the salesman, and so is Jeff McFadden. And they got Scott Bordner to buy into the the vision to become director of agronomy of this thing, and then they purchased another golf course. And they're building a a, a staff and a holistic employee training program in fact scott bordner Union league national knows that housing's really tough on the, the jersey shorts because of the, the cost of mm-hmm. getting a place there in the summer so even before they build the maintenance facility after they complete the golf course he told me he goes hopefully we build the employee housing before we even build the maintenance facility because that's such a critical element into this thing and it's just not golf employees. It's also clubhouse employees, operations employees. I mean, to run a national level club that's going to be busy as heck during the summer, you need you need a lot of people and you need a place for them to, to live. So they've been able to recruit some assistant superintendents from elsewhere. And uh, they're really generating a buzz through social media and connecting with young workers. They're going to create a union league university training program. Uh, I got to meet a gentleman when I was at Torresdale named Mike Elliott, who is going to build the equipment technician program for the union league. And you know where he came from? No, I don't. came from Pine Valley. Oh, a little course. Yeah, and Mike had been the head equipment technician there for, for a decade plus that wow. did a fabulous job, but chance to, to build a program and work with young people and get people to come into the industry. And if you think about it, this is big-scale private golf course development and maintenance right now. So each course they buy, they, their, their scale grows. They have three of them. They're contrasting golf courses. Union League National, like I said, is going to be this sandy visual fireworks course, Torsdale's at Donald Ross design dating back to 1920, and then Liberty Hill, their most recent purchase, which honestly I never heard of when it was the Ace Club, is a designed by Warren Henderson, who was working with Gary Player Design, opened in 2003. Uh, awesome, awesome golf course with rolling land, built on some rocks. Uh, looks like you could put a... PGA Tour Tournament there right now. Mm -hmm. It's a beast of a golf course. Contrast Toursdale, contrast Union League National, and they're just going to scale it. I mean, they're getting members from all over the region, and the more members they get, the more things they can do, the more capital they have, Mm -hmm. the more, more opportunity they have maybe to even further expand their golf operation. So to go from no golf courses to this type of operation in basically seven years is pretty remarkable. It's unlike any story in the industry right now, and that they have are, are so good. I mean, I i spent an hour with Jeff McFadden, who's one of the most respected club managers on the planet, really, in his office and just a super smart human being. And we had a great conversation and he felt like I felt like I was interviewing a um a CEO for a documentary or something. Well, really he, he a, had an answer to every yeah. question. He but knew he what a question CEO, was coming. We had a yeah, to a degree. Yes he is. Yeah. And Sean Palmer is super bright and enthusiastic and has worked his behind off to sell this thing. And then uh, not only do they have Scott Bordner and Pat Hockey you know, over at Union League National, but Andrew Dooley's is the superintendent at Torresdale. He came from Berkshire Country Club. And maybe the most fascinating person I met on this trip was the last one that I spent time with. And that's John Canavan, the superintendent at Liberty Hill. Get this, Matt. He started working on that property
0: In 1982, when it was called Eagle Lodge. Hmm. Just to put this in perspective, yes, that'll be 40 years next year. Guy, you turned two that year? And that was a year before I was born. In fact, John's first
1: day, he was a teenager. It was on March 29, 1982. 82. He said he was removing rocks from the golf course, from various parts of the course, and then it snowed the next day. Okay. Eagle Lodge was a Reese Jones design, and then... The insurance companies got involved, and in 2003, it became the Ace Club owned by Chubb Insurance. There's a um, huge lodge and conference center there, so the Union League purchased all 311 acres, and John Canavan's connection to that property is pretty darn special. Uh, Went to Penn State, got his degree, started working there, became the superintendent in the mid-1990s. Was the the superintendent when they did the, the new course with Gary Player Design and Warren Henderson. In the early 2000s, uh, some of that construction started right around 9 11. And then hmm. the most positive person, too, I think I met on the trip, maybe the most positive superintendent I've ever been around with. You know, you're always wondering when you meet a superintendent whose club just went through an owner change if they're going to be uptight or, or, or guard it. But he said, No, nah, we've been owned by a lot of insurance companies over the years. You know, I, I know the Union League's doing big things. He couldn't be more excited. Imagine being in the second or third stage of your career, you know, the the back nine of it and having an ownership change, you're probably freaking out. But John was looking at it as a complete positive. I mean, he does a terrific job. Uh, He's got 18-year-old bent grass, greens, tees, and fairways. And I mean, he's almost completely POA free which is amazing. And that's probably something we'll get into when I write about him a little, how he's able to do that. Doesn't even have a resume. Has never, (laughs) he liked working there so much from the time he started there and the time he went to Penn State. And he's really Mm -hmm. never, He's never considered working anywhere else. So that's first superintendent I've ever spent time with that doesn't have a resume. I mean, how, how cool is that? It's, part of it's like, wow, that's super cool. And then part of that is probably like us as you know overly cautious, cautious human beings. It's like, yeah, yeah, you probably should always have a resume updated on file. You just
0: don't ever know what's going to happen. Well, And how many people have only worked in or out of golf? How many people have only worked for one company in their lives? Obviously, there's, there's it's a percentage of the workforce at this point, but that's dropping all the time. But how many people in this industry have only worked for one club? And it's had it called three different names in that time he's worked there. <laughs> Details. Before we wrap up, I do want to go back just for a second to what they're doing in terms of employee housing. Because you mentioned this to me when you came back, and I forgot to write it down, but they have acquired – How many units, little apartments or or studios for employee housing? Because that just takes, especially in a big city, that takes away so much of the stress trying to find housing and then pay for housing. This is an incredible benefit. And I wonder if more clubs uh, aren't going to adopt something like this. They're not quite fully there yet.
1: and I believe the vision is to eventually do a dormitory-type facility by Union League National. Now with um, Liberty Hill, they have the conference center, so their room's there. But what they're doing around Union League National, they've bought some of the homes around golf courses and have used those as cottages or employee housing, cottages for members that are coming in from out of town okay. or overnight. Or, you know, I think the assistant superintendents at Union League National live, live in one of those. So they're starting to do that. And Torsdale is really interesting because it's in Northeast Philadelphia within the city limits. It's in one of those old neighborhoods with row houses. So you have all these row houses bordering this private gated country club that's surrounded by a fence and and they've tried to acquire some properties there but the really cool thing about Toursdale is that I believe it's close to 200 acres so if you think about it how many clubs that were created in 1920 in a major metropolitan area within city limits have 200 acres so no not many they're getting ready to build a short course there next year so how many clubs in that how many old classic clubs have the land to build a short course? So they're going to get, they're getting ready to do that. They're, they're on youth programs and, and the quick play through it. They really have the whole thing figured out and uh, just their branding and marketing. I mean, they have cool logos. Uh, they're already thinking about what's next. You know, it's, it's a, it would be a, if you're a young person in the industry, I think it would be a really exciting place to work. There are a lot of great places to work in this industry, but they have the opportunity to go there and, know, see three different types of golf courses and uh, different management styles and different turf varieties and it'd be really attractive right to do that and plus if you go to a big scale operation like that that's a high quality one where where they really care about the people there's a lot of room for advancement just within Mm -hmm. and that's just not on the golf maintenance side that's if you work on the the food and beverage side i mean Right. right i got to stay in the uh philadelphia union league's downtown location and just the restaurants and and different events that they run through there are, are really really impressive but amazing that to have a club that's lasted that long and didn't have golf and you now is going into golf in a in an attack mode like that one of the bigger stories in my seven and a half years here and we'll have much more about this in either the october or the november issue i was gonna say i, I mean we may have a book about this the way this thing's <laughs> going you should see all the interviews i did and I think I talked to 14 different people and all great people uh thoroughly enjoyed my time there but that that last evening with John Canavan was really special it was like a perfect jun- June evening you know temperatures in the low 70s very little humidity uh every hole we drove up to it was like he saw it for the first time so here's somebody that's ah. been working working there for 39 years and we'd get up to a green and he'd just he'd just go that's a beautiful green site or you know here's here's number four it's a great golf hole and just to see somebody that's done that job to, for so long yeah, and to still have that to fashion. have that excitement yeah. i never met him didn't really know much about him like i said I, I didn't know anything about the ace club as a golf course it was pretty low-key private when it was owned by the insurance company and it's a big-time golf course and john it turns out he reads like every word in the magazine so he knew who we were he even referenced the column that i wrote which yeah. which was pretty cool and you know, there are thousands of superintendents that are out there like that that just have these deep connections to the place they work and the land that they manage, and maybe you don't see them on social media or don't meet them at the industry events, but they're out there all over the place like that. And to get time to uh, with John like that at the end of a trip was pretty darn special, and the sun was setting and perfect June evening on perfect bent grass on a golf course that was perfectly maintained to somebody that's had the perfect career, if you really think about it, to stay at one place and get treated well the entire time. And we got to my SUV. I was supposed to drive home that night, and I was like, dang, it's 9 o'clock. I'm six hours from home. So needless to say, I didn't make it home the night I was supposed to. So sorry, Lindsay, if you're listening. Not
0: that she would care. That's my fiancé. Well, you have teased writing club histories a few times in the Two plus years we've worked together, maybe maybe uh maybe the Union League is the one maybe maybe you'll get hired to write their official club history. that sounds all well and good,
1: Matt, but I should probably get more worried about uh finishing my August column before I
0: ever think of anything like that six hundred words versus sixty thousand words. a great hour as always greens with envy number twenty nine navigating New Jersey and Philadelphia. thanks for the Audio tour of a lot of great courses, Guy. Again, the July issue should be in your mailbox, if not already. Very, very soon. Fast and Firm comes out on Tuesday. And again, if you know of a course, whether it's yours or somebody else's, that handled 100,000 or more rounds last year or is on pace to do so this year, let us know. We want to write that story. For Guy Cipriano, I'm Matt Lowell. Thanks so much for listening to Greens with Envy and all the podcasts on the Superintendent. Radio Network, we could not do what we do without you. And thanks
1: for listening. And when we get to Greens with Envy number 30, you'll be hearing a lot more of Matt than me. Probably. Matt's got a trip planned.